Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boitler. So here's a question I'd like you all to ponder for about five seconds, wherever you happen to be listening. If you could go back in time to the days just before Friendster and then MySpace and then Facebook snaked their way through the world, and you had the power to do anything from just stop it in its tracks, so the social media revolution would never happen, uh, to nothing at all, what would you do? Would you hit the kill switch and spare us all from the social web? Would you let things proceed exactly as they did? Um, would you try to warn people? Uh, look, this is going to start out really cool and chill, but soon it will consume way more of our lives and societies than is probably healthy. It'll be a breeding ground for hatreds and anxieties. We should probably get ahead of that now. I don't think of myself as any kind of Luddite, but I'm sure I would intervene somehow, maybe even by shutting the whole thing down. And I've been thinking about this a lot in the past couple of weeks, not just because of Elon Musk or every other bad thing that's come out of social media in the past several years, uh, but because I think we may be at one of these fork in the road moments right now. And I think there's hope that we can be a bit less naive about what risks we might be courting now than we were in the innocent days of the early web. So like a lot of people, I've been playing around with ChatGPT. ChatGPT refers specifically to the generative pre-trained transformer. But if you've heard about it, you probably know it as like the new AI chatbot. Uh, it's a tool built by the company OpenAI, which builds artificial intelligence. And ChatGPT is basically just as I described. It's a, a web-based chat window. But instead of talking to a person, you're talking to a machine. And the machine is built by humans and refined by humans, but most of the learning ChatGPT has done to inform its answers and write them in proper English and to create a remarkable degree of verisimilitude, all of that is automated. Basically, if it was on the web in the year 2021, the chatbot knows about it and can draw on it when you ask it for help in some way. And I mean, it's honestly pretty fun to play around with. But when you do, it becomes clear that the horizons have shifted. If this kind of thing becomes ubiquitous, the way smartphones and earbuds and the Internet of Things are, it's going to change the world a lot. By contrast to the dawn of social media, I don't think it's hard to imagine of all kinds of plausible upheavals AI could cause. Amazing ones, scary ones, everything in between. I'm not sure who the most prescient Cassandra was back when social media was new. I remember it mostly as a moment when we were all like, hey, this is pretty cool. We can keep up with folks. It's like a phone book with text and pictures and stuff. Whereas writers and philosophers and movie producers have been thinking about this AI watershed moment forever. But here's the thing. We're going to have to think all this stuff through now and hard and fast because it's in the nature of the technology itself to spread and get better. And it's a species of technology that quite frankly scares some of the people who know the most about it. If you ever got stoned out of your mind in college and talked about the robot apocalypse, like that is a scenario that the builders of this stuff can't rule out. At the same time, there are so many smaller dilemmas between here and there. It's almost like you need a whole AI system to figure out what they are, prioritize them by urgency, and help you think through how we collectively could impose order on it or, or mitigate the risks of recording. Can these early stage AI innovations generally help people rather than hurt them? 
is an important question well before the machines get smart enough to build weapons and enslave us. So this is going to be in some ways a relatively rudimentary conversation because I don't really know what I'm talking about, uh, but also a bit more meta than usual because I don't think a podcast, or at least this podcast, is a, is a great place to understand what AI is and how it works. But it could be a good place to start thinking about how to think about AI before AI starts thinking about us. Kevin Roos is an author and technology columnist for the New York Times, and I happen to know he's thought a lot about these very questions because I cribbed some of them from his podcast, Hard Fork. And he's here this week with the answers. Kevin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I guess the first question I want to ask you is the most general, which is why might we want advanced AI in our lives? And by we, I mean, I mean society and not like me, a guy who could really use a robot made. <laughs> well, I think humans have always found uses for new technology. I mean, there's a lot of things that we spend time doing today that we don't particularly like doing. Um, one example from my own life, I mean, I'm sure you remember um, years ago in journalism, if you wanted to transcribe an interview, you had to sit there by hand and type it out, listening to the audio. And that was, you know, sort of menial work and nobody really likes doing it. And so now you just throw the wave file into an AI transcription program and it gives it right back to you. So that's a kind of time-saving device that I find very useful and satisfying. And you can imagine lots more of those. I mean, what if an AI could draft the, you know, the first version of a podcast intro or of a newspaper column or of a marketing email? Um, we can see many, many uses for these things. I I always end up when I when I think like what are what are the things that we could get out of AI socially more than just like of individual use to a particular person who doesn't like their chores or whatever um, is, is stuff like what you're talking about where I feel like in almost every case you could imagine the innovation without the artificial intelligence, right? Like um, you like, you don't need um, AI to do transcription per se. Like you don't need it like machine learning. Do you? Sure you do. Uh, I mean, that's how that's how these programs work. They use you know speech to text uh, machine learning models to make it so that your transcriptions actually match what the person said. I okay, maybe, maybe like my naivety is showing here, but I guess what I mean is the the technology that you need to get words and audio converted to words on tape doesn't require the sort of it, it's a, it's a program that can just be the program and doesn't need to get better and smarter and start thinking like, like doesn't need humans constantly feeding back into it to make sure that it's not like getting out of its box. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> You're saying we should just have AI that, that is sort of mediocre and that it should stay mediocre. <laughs> no, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is that a lot of the, a lot of the innovations that, uh, or a lot of the benefits that I think people see in AI are things that, we could figure out how to get to without opening the Pandora's box that I think I, I want to talk to you about. Like, like on your show, for instance, you guys talked about mental health and basically AI could be like having a life coach and a therapist at the ready at all times. Um, and if you had that, it would help any one person or large groups of people make better decisions, grapple with crises as they arise. And like, that obviously sounds 
pretty good, like better than the status quo. But like, why is that? Why, or why would a tech utopian say that working toward that goal is better than just like as a political project, trying to build an abundance of human to human coaching and therapy? And I think you could apply a similar analysis to like transcription. If you want transcription, you can have transcription without having all like right. the why whole... do we why do we need to build the the AI um, you know Skynet in order to have these sort of narrowly useful applications? Yes, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> so what I think a tech you know utopian or an AI you know evangelist would say to that is that a lot of the things that so th- this is a a debate that happens in the AI community all the time about whether we should be trying to build what AI researchers refer to as AGI or artificial general intelligence, Mm -hmm. or whether we should be focused on what they call narrow AI, which is AI that can do one thing or a small set of things very competently. But, you know, you can't tell your, you know, you can't tell your dishwasher to wash your clothes. You know, maybe you shouldn't be able to tell your, you know, therapy chat bot to write your essay. Uh, Maybe these things should be contained. And I think the response that I've heard from a lot of AI researchers is that a lot of these so-called narrow AI tasks are actually require an AI that has kind of a model of all human language and behavior (laughs) in order to work well. I mean, just take your example of a therapy bot, which I think is something that is you know, we can both agree would be very useful for a lot of people if an AI could, you know, talk to you and 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 help you through your problems and understand and, and sort of have a, a model, a working model of of your psyche and any issues that you may have. That's actually not an easy problem. Um, it requires first of all, solving language. And language is what these models are working toward. They are um, you know, that turns out to be quite a hard problem. And once you've solved it, or at least produced an AI model that does uh, understand language very well, that has just a tremendous number of applications. That's really what we're talking about here, is an AI that has been trained on, you know, millions of examples, billions of examples of human communication, and has come up with a very sophisticated production engine for human-like language. That is what we're talking about. It, these these things, you know, they're not, um, these are not self-driving cars. These are not, you know, there are various other types of problems that these large language models don't solve. But what they do is, uh, is it, they're able to communicate across a range of different styles in various ways that could be helpful to us. So to make sure I'm understanding right, the I, the the one side of the argument is we should focus on specific concrete tasks that would just make the experience of human life easier, better, or whatever. The other is you can't really do that well unless you build the big scary Skynet thing, right? Um, do you? I mean, do you have a sense just as a reporter of who has the better of that argument? Because that seems critical to understanding whether we should view this as like something that will just improve individual aspects of life that are complex or something that, um, you know, is going to open a a Pandora's box that could go very badly. (laughs) Well, so I think there are a couple things here. I think one is just 
we can observe the performance of the narrow approach versus the the generalist approach. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm sure you've had the experience of like contacting a customer service chat bot in the past 10 years on like, you know, the Delta website or whatever. It's like a pretty bad experience, right? Yeah. That is like a, that is a narrow AI application and it's not that good. And it pretty quickly gets to the end of its capacity. It says, you know, I can't answer that question. I'm going to transfer you to a human right. or whatever. So that's the narrow approach. And we've seen where that ends. But now all of these customer service interactions are going to be redesigned using these large language models um, like ChatGPT. And that will be much better and it will be able to solve a much wider range of customers' problems. So it just is true empirically that the the larger the model, the more the more general the language model, the better it is at handling queries and solving problems. That's just, I mean, that's just sort of what the research shows us. Now, the flip side of that is, are the risks of developing this kind of general AI um, so great that it might overpower um, in our minds, the the added benefits of this functionality. And that's where I think you're making subjective judgment calls. Right. Okay. So I, I think I understand, like, broadly speaking, what people worry about when they worry about uh, the risks that you might uncork by, by just unleashing that kind of technology. What do the evangelists for for the large language models and you know the the just an ai future say about what what they think the world will look like if if this is just if we allow this to just kind of just loose it into society well they argue about it constantly i mean mm -hmm. it's a big topic there are entire message boards with you know thousands of posts about um various risks of agi and um and what might happen and there are camps right there's a camp that is very concerned about the risk of rogue ai that would sort of get so smart and so capable that it could turn on us um, and and end civilization. I mean, there, there are serious philosophers and AI researchers who believe that that's a possibility. Uh, there are also people who believe that that's totally overblown and that we are nowhere near um, an AI that will approach human sentience and that will be able to, for example, you know, build autonomous weapons and deploy them on its own. Um, and then there's a lot of people in the middle who sort of worry about some pieces of this and think that we ought to design safeguards and put guardrails around these systems so that they can't or, or won't be used in ways that are harmful to society. Um, but that's a very active, very ongoing discussion in the AI community. And I would say you could ask, you know, a hundred uh, AI researchers this question, you'd get a hundred different answers. Do any of them sort of take seriously the, the, the like, the ur utopian vision where it's like, look, we won't have to work anymore. We will have, uh, you know, all of our productive capacity will be handled by the machines and humans will be able to flourish. Or does that kind of utopianism get sort of laughed out of these discussions? No, it, it's definitely a view that's out there. There's a, a fun book that was published a few years ago called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. And it was sort of, it was sort of this, this argument for this kind of utopian vision where 
the robots and the AIs are just taking care of all of our material needs. We don't have to work anymore. Um, everything is abundant and free or close to free. And we can just sit around and play video games all day or make art or hang out with our friends or do whatever we want to do. And I think that's that's sort of the, the vision that a lot of these researchers have in mind. Now, they don't all think it's going to be a seamless transition to that. They're not naive. Um, no technological transformation has ever been seamless since the Industrial Revolution. And so I think there are a lot of people who, who sort of, um, you know, want to get through that period in as cautious a way as possible, but who do think that kind of at the end of that, we will arrive at this techno-utopia. Okay, so like the fact that, A, the fact that there are people who like assume, and I'm not saying like I definitely disagree, but I think it's worth thinking that like a world where, you know, nobody had to work, nobody had to till soil to get food, nobody, you know, machines took care of all the all the productive stuff and, and, and we just got to be creative and socialize and so on. Like that that would be good. Like I'm not certain it would be. It sounds fun because working sometimes sucks. Um, but like, I think it, there's a question about like what, um, many questions about like what that would do to society and what that would do to, to humans on an individual level. But, but beyond the, like the question of like, is that a good goal? Like the idea that AI is the way to get to sort of like a post-labor world and the, and like the fact that people are like sort of clinging to that as the end goal of this is part of the reason why I find it so unsettling because it seems so detached to me, right? Like, well, well, how, how else would we get there? I mean, like if, if a lot of, you know, if, you know, billions of people now have jobs that require them to, you know, to write things, to send emails, to make phone calls, to, you know, move data around in a database, to write programs, to drive cars. I mean, how else other than AI do you get to a world where those people don't have to do those things? I I, I don't have an answer, but I mean, yeah. I, you know, if, if it's as you say, that you couldn't address in like individual tasks with individual dumb AI, um, then maybe AI, like, you know, the uh, advanced AI is the only way to do it. Um, uh, but I guess I think with, with many kinds of in innovation, like the collective benefit to humanity um, is so much greater, at least in hindsight, but I think also like often in foresight than any major drawback um, that you, you know, you'd never think about going, like you would never unmake penicillin or the internal combustion engine. Um, and even like where the good and evil are kind of comparable in magnitude, like fission power, you get why humans collectively would probably say, you know, yeah, we think the good is worth the bad. Like maybe eventually the fact that we mastered fission power will give us fusion power and clean energy abundance, right? Like the, we can make these kind of complex things, but like the utopian vision of benevolent AI, it like, I, I, it can't promise anything like cures diseases or makes exploring the world possible. It's typically, I think like machines will do our productive work and we will enjoy the spoils. We'll have more time for leisure and creativity. And I feel like the leaps you have to make to get from we invented AI to like our bartenders and farmers and doctors are all robots is 
pretty attenuated and it's much more attenuated than like we invented a cure for cancer and now nobody dies from from cancer um, oh see i totally disagree with that and i think like it's actually quite related to this conversation we've been having about these large language models like chat gpt so several years ago um now um a company called DeepMind, which is a subsidiary of Google, um, started using these models, these so-called transformer models, to try to solve a problem that had vexed scientists and molecular biologists for decades. It's called the protein folding problem. It's basically like if you have a two-dimensional sequence of amino acids, what does the 3D protein structure of that protein look like? And Scientists had tried and failed for years to solve this using conventional methods. They trained an AI, the same type of AI that goes into GPT-3 and all these other large language models. They trained it to take these amino acid sequences and predict protein structures, and it solved the protein folding problem, essentially. So now, if you are a scientist who's looking to make a breakthrough on using a certain type of protein to make a new drug, for example, or to solve you know, to cure some type of cancer, that is going to be much, much easier for you because of, because the AI researchers figured out that that same model that was generating chatbots could also be used to fold proteins. So I, I actually think there's, there's a real link here between some of these, uh, these seemingly, you know, sort of luxurious applications of the tech to like solving real life and death problems right right the like the if you apply the ai to like if, if you imagine a problem that you want to solve like curing cancer you apply the artificial intelligence to that problem and you you hasten the goal um and that seems like unalloyed good it, it's the it's the utopian endpoint where i feel like we have automated stuff before and sometimes it's a net win for humankind but like we know the displaced workers don't get to keep the labor savings and go off and make art. And that's like the, the distance that I'm talking about that like AI could help find a cure for cancer and then people will stop dying of cancer. That seems like a pretty direct line to me. We will have advanced AI and thus like the, the the utopia of like the labor free utopia of our dreams. That seems like uh, there's like a million political problems Totally, will, but I would say that, that those are dis- those are political problems, not technological problems, right? So that has to do with how we how we implement the technology and who's getting the the increased productivity fruits of that technology. So, and this can go both ways, right? So, um, I wrote a book about AI a few years ago, and and I went back and I looked at previous waves of sort of automation, um, starting in the industrial revolution, all the way through the PC revolution, um, in, in the eighties and nineties, and it's gone both ways. So during the industrial revolution, for example, workers um, didn't see real wage gains as a result of the increased productivity of the factory machines for about 50 years in some cases. So an entire generation went through the workforce not necessarily having their paychecks go up as a result of the fact that they were working in these hyperproductive factories rather than doing this backbreaking farm labor. But in the middle of the 20th century, when a lot of American factories were automating in things like auto manufacturing, workers actually did see almost immediate gains from 
the increased productivity of their workplaces. And the big reason why, obviously, is because they had unions, right? These were unionized workforces. They were able to advocate for and collectively bargain for a larger share of the increased profits. And so the workers' lives did end up being better. Those jobs were better as a result of the automation of those factories. So it can go both ways, but I would just say, like, those are generally problems with labor and management and political questions rather than questions about the actual technology. Right. Yes. Okay. And like, I'm glad you said that because it, it, it speaks to the part of me that does not want to be mistaken for like a Luddite. Like, I think it's super cool that humans have been able to get this far in the AI development process. It's the, it's the, like, like there's no abstracting it from the political world. Like you can't, I don't think. Um, and given that our political world is fallen and corrupt and there are, you know, no perfect societies, but plenty of bad ones. Um, you know, the, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to under to, to start thinking through how the technology might be abused and really hurt people. Like even short of the robot apocalypse where, where the robots themselves turn on us. Right. Sure. I mean, there are all kinds of things that that could go wrong. But I think a good sort of general test for whether, you know, <laughs> for whether technological progress in general benefits us is like, would you switch lives with someone who lived 200 years ago? I would not. I don't think a lot of people would. Um, you wouldn't have penicillin, you wouldn't have, uh, you know, cars, you wouldn't, I mean, just the sort of simple litmus test for one's belief in technological progress is, you know, would you rather live now or would you rather live at any point in the distant past? Well, but I think it's true for us right now, but it hasn't always been true that at, at every point that was today, that yesterday didn't look better. Like there has been backsliding in the world. And I think AI is this watershed thing that you can't just assume that the world as changed by AI 50 years from now is going to be one that we don't regret having walked into. For sure. And I, I make this point a lot in, in my book is that I, you know, it's, we, technology does generally make us better off in the long run, but people don't live in the long run, right? There right. are people who <laughs> That's lost another their jobs yeah. to, um, you know, people who lost their jobs to the Industrial Revolution or the manufacturing uh, automation boom in the 20th century who weren't able to sort of seamlessly make the transition from one era to the next. They fell through the cracks. They, you know, lost high-paying jobs and were forced to take lower-paying jobs in a different sector. So I don't want to be mistaken for someone who thinks that this is all going to work out just fine for everyone. I think what we can start to do is to build the systems that can help people as they fall through the cracks, as they get displaced by this new technology to make it so that they can easily get back on their feet. How useful do you think it is to look to the pitfalls we, we've lived through with social media when we're thinking about how to steal ourselves for the AI future? Like you were just talking about, look, like this will displace people from their jobs. It just will, right? Like this will probably have all kinds of other unforeseen consequences, even if the benefits we ultimately decide outweigh them. But like with social media, we did no advanced planning. There was no blue ribbon commission to try to figure out how we were going to integrate this technology into our lives. And like, 
you know, we're living with the consequences of that now. Do you think that there's any way to like imagine we're in the year 2003 or four right now and start using social media as like a, as like a model preparing for what might be coming down the pike with AI so that we're not tripped up at least by the most obvious consequences? Yeah. And I think that's already happening to some degree. I mean, you do have, you know, task forces and AI ethics committees and, you know, lots of people writing and thinking about potential downsides. But I, I, I think it's a great question because I, I think that we, we made a, at least a couple mistakes in evaluating social media when it first emerged. The first was that people just didn't think it would work. Like, it wasn't so much that they thought it was bad or destroying society or increasing polarization. They just thought it was kind of stupid. Like there was this whole era where it was like, why would I go on Instagram and like post pictures of my breakfast? Like, why would I go on Twitter and like talk about what I ate for lunch? Like it just, it was seen as this kind of novelty that was dumb and useless and that people would eventually get sick of it and move on. And what I don't think people were taking seriously enough at the time was the possibility that this actually would succeed and succeed beyond anyone's expectations. And I think you start, you see a little bit of that happening now with AI. I mean, certainly less than you used to when the technology was worse and mm -hmm. less developed, but you still see people saying, oh, this AI, like it can't even write, you know, a perfect essay on the <laughs> philosophy of John Locke. Like it's, you know, it, this, this would only get a B minus in a college class. And it's like, yeah, but like on the other hand, like this would get a B minus in a college class and it was invented like a week ago. So um, so I think that we need to take seriously the possibility that all of this will work very well and that the rate of progress will either stay constant or continue to accelerate and um, and extrapolate from there rather than saying, oh, these systems now, they're so dumb, they can't even do X, Y, and Z. What what is this? What is like the universe? Like the universe, basically, that you report on, where these discussions, debates, this sort of thinking is happening, look like. Like it sounds like it's think tanks, universities, um, you know, tech companies, an, a largely online discussion among people who are very smart, but are a, a degree or two at least away from, say, like government decision maker. Um, is, am I wrong about that? Is is there like a is there like a level at which our government or our like other governments are in conversation with each other about like you know what are the rules of war in the world where AI is advanced and and operating at a very high level? Well, governments are obviously very interested in this, um, not least because it's going to affect um, things like you know military weaponry and and they've they're already you know blue ribbon commissions and you know, eric schmidt of google uh, formerly of google has been you know trying to convince the military and silicon valley to work together now for years you know there are all kinds of uh he actually wrote a book on ai uh with henry kissinger <laughs> which i reviewed uh in the new york times book review using ai because um, <laughs> <laughs> i was just like this this is not a task that i actually want to do i'm just going to give it to the ai um so it did it did a pretty passable job nice. um and um, but I, I do think that governments are paying attention. I don't know how sophisticated the conversations right. that they're having with the tech companies are, um, but I know that there are efforts to uh, to make that conversation more sophisticated. So Stanford um, 
recently held a boot camp for congressional staffers where the congressional staffers, you know, flew out to Palo Alto and went to workshops and, you know, talked about the the latest capabilities of these systems. So I know that there are efforts to get um, that conversation up to speed. You know, frankly, I'm a little bit pessimistic about it just because it seems like our lawmakers are still figuring out how social media works. Yes, this is what I was going to say. And social media has been around for 20 years, at least. So I think that um, what we need to get our heads around is the fact that all this is happening very quickly and that the conversation needs to progress just as quickly. Right, right. I mean, I think, I, you know, as you were talking, I was imagining the House and Senate hearings with with social right. with the social media executives, where like the members of Congress just embarrassed themselves with how little they and and it was all also after the horse was way out of the barn, right? They were having these hearings after the twenty sixteen election, where for the first time they realized, oh, social media is you know can be used for more than just keeping up with your ex girlfriend from wherever, you know, like you know having yeah. just been through that experience. An, an AI optimized to subvert U.S. elections. Like, on the one hand, that's like textbook fighting the last war, but it also seems like something that will obviously happen, like maybe before the decade is out, right? Like, who's... Yeah, or, or you know, has already happened. One yeah, as far as... I mean, I, the, the Facebook news feed is run by AI. So it is... Uh, there's this sort of famous quote in, in technology that it's it's only AI until it works. Uh, and, and at which point it's just a news feed or, uh, you know, Siri or, uh, you know, a smart toaster or whatever. It's like, it's, it just, we stop referring to it as AI once it just becomes part of our daily lives. Right. So, yeah, I think right. you could argue that, that AI has already um, affected all of these things that we're talking about. Positively Dreadful is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. Masterclass offers over 180 classes from a range of leading instructors, which means the knowledge you've always wanted is closer than you think. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons, usually around 10 minutes long. You can explore at your own pace, and each class is supported by downloadable materials, class guides, recipes, and more. Sessions, a new product for Masterclass, allow for a deeper dive into the lessons over a month-long period. Sessions include projects to submit to a teaching assistant for feedback, as well as the opportunity to learn alongside a community of peers. Masterclass is available on iOS, Android, Desktop, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and Roku. I highly recommend you check it out. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash PD today. That's masterclass.com slash PD. Terms apply. Positively Dreadful is brought to you by Z-Biotics. Ever skipped a workout because of drinks the night before? Me too, because I'm old. If you're committed to your healthy routine this year, you need Z-Biotics. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol. Drink responsibly and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. Give Zbiotics a try for yourself. 
Go to zbiotics.com slash PD to get 15% off your first order when you use PD at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Plus, the holidays are upon us, and Zbiotics makes a great gift. It's unique, thoughtful, and under $40. We'll all be having more drinks this holiday season, so order today to get Zbiotics in time. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash PD and use the code PD at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode. I guess there's a, a loose analogy to like AI can help scientists solve the like how do you cure disease problem. A- AI can help nation states screw around in each other's election. But I don't think we have yet, as far as we know, at least seen a nation state develop a technology that is programmed to try to understand how best to deploy messages to whatever, you know, screw with an election. And like that could easily, I mean, if you play with, with, uh, with the open AI chat bot, like you will instantly realize like how this could be deployed to ends like that, you know, not necessarily specifically that one, but just like chicanery in general. For sure. And I, I'm, I think, you know, the number of governments that are working on this, I don't know exactly, but you know, for example, China has, has made um, developing next generation AI, a a huge national priority for years now. Um, And that's a big part of what their, you know, their government technology spending is going toward. And they're also, you know, intimately involved with private sector technology companies, uh, you know, in, in China. So it's, uh, it's sort of, we're sort of talking about this as if it's in the future tense, but I think it's, it's in the present and past tense as well. That's scary. Um, okay, well, you alluded to this a, a little bit, but let's talk about how AI might end up competing with human creators. Um, I sort of built this conversation around the the chatbot, but um, there's another AI tool. I think it's called Lenza. I think that's how you pronounce it, which as far as I can tell works like you give Lenza all your information and it generates... It makes cool. you hot. Yeah, yeah. It generates a- <laughs> avatars for you to use on social media, where you look super cool. Um, yeah. I haven't, I haven't played around with Lenza uh, in part because the the few artists that I know are horrified by it, and they seem to think that um, like art generating artificial intelligence is like a terminal parasite for human artists. Um, and part of me trusts their instincts, but another part of me thinks, you know, art has survived lots of technological development um, that makes it easy for non-artists to create aesthetically cool stuff. So where, 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 who do you think has like the, the stronger instincts on this debate? Like the people who are like, we need to shut this down or, or humans will never work as artists again. Or the people who are like, it's not, it's, it's really not all that. Uh, it's really not worth getting so worked up about it. I mean, I think I understand why f- folks are upset about it. Um, at the same time, people have been making this exact criticism of new art making technology for hundreds of years. I mean, if you go back and look at the reactions among artists to the camera, um, you know, there were there were art critics and and very serious, thoughtful people who proclaimed that the camera was the death of art. Um, and obviously that wasn't true. It just created a new genre of art and amateurs and 
professionals, you know, could could get better and could use photographs to make kinds of art that weren't possible with paintings. And um, and so I think there's, I, I think of AI generated art as sort of a just a new genre in the same way that photography was a new genre. Um, it's slightly different because what's happening with AI generated art is that these models are trained on um, millions of, you know, probably billions of examples of art, some of which was, you know, created and copyrighted and and sold by actual living human artists. And it really, um, it really sucks for some of those artists to see that there's now an AI that's capable of mimicking their style. Um, there's an interesting example a few weeks ago. Um, there was an artist named Greg Grakowski, who is sort of a famous fantasy artist. He makes a lot of like, you know, fantasy uh, uh, graphics. And people who were using these AI art generators discovered that if you just typed in Greg Rutkowski to the prompt engine and, and told it to make your image look like it, it would make it amazing because Greg, Greg Rutkowski is an amazing artist. So it was sort of this like secret hack that people discovered that you could use to make your art in these apps turn out way better. And that sucks for yeah. Greg Rutkowski because all <laughs> of a sudden, like he has been commoditized and now people can use this AI art generator that was trained, you know, in part on his productions to make art that looks every bit or, you know, most bits as good as an actual Greg Redkowski creation. So I think that's a, a genuine problem and a genuine thing that artists are correct to be mad about. And I, I hope that these AI art programs will, for example, allow them to opt out of having their imagery included in the training sets. Um, but I do think I do think that this is um, going to and is already transforming art um, in in many, many ways. And I think that, you know, it's the cat's sort of out of the bag with that. Yeah, my maybe this is a little half-baked, but my instinct is that AI is probably a greater threat the more abstract the creative enterprise is. Like, you know, I've... People have asked me, are you concerned as a journalist that AI is going to make you, your work irrelevant? Um, and I think like it, in the realm of journalism, if you're, if you're not doing paint by numbers journalism where it's just like, okay, you're, you're dial a quote here, dial a quote there, put it into a story. But you're like applying actual judgment to you know what stories are interesting and who are the meaningful people to talk to, uh, who are the most interesting sources. Um, what is the right way to think about a development in the world, right? Like if you outsource those kinds of questions to an AI, the final product is going to seem weird, like, like very uncanny. On the other hand, like I can imagine AIs creating magical realist fiction or music or, or abstract art of the kind you were just talking about that nobody could reliably identify as machine generated. And, and that's sad. And I think it touches on what we were, you know, the, this utopia question, if AI is supposed to liberate us to be our best creative selves, but it's simultaneously colonizing the creative realm, like what's left for us to do with our newfound free time? Yeah, I, I sort of disagree with that, actually. Okay. I think that, I think that um, there have been some interesting sort of studies done where if you ask people, you know, 
what percentage of workers do you think will be displaced by AI? Um, you know, many people say it's like, you know, 75% of people say it's like a huge problem that's going to displace lots of workers. And then if you ask people if they're worried about their own jobs being displaced by AI, like only 25% of people say that they're worried about that. So there's this kind of like hubris that people have where it's like, oh, AI could replace like those people, but right. I, I am so special, special and unique yeah. and talented that it couldn't replace what I do. And I think, you know, and I, I, I love your writing and I would never say anything bad about it, but, you know, just for for my own writing or my own you know newspaper like i think there's a, like a decent amount of what i do that could be automated like some of some days i'm really creative i'm really firing on all on all cylinders i'm coming up with ideas that are sort of original some days if i'm being totally honest like it's pretty predictable something happens in the news i come out with a take like it's not all that original and so i think even for those of us who consider ourselves sort of special and and talented and beyond uh, the reach of these AI programs, like we might have to step our games up. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to suggest that it would affect nothing. It, like actually, like the competitive pressure would be to be to like what we have over the machines is this abstract notion of judgment. I guess. But um, but I don't I don't even know if I agree with that because no? okay. what a lot of these AIs are doing is is a lot of what we are doing as writers and journalists and analysts is we're synthesizing ideas. We're, you know, taking a, an argument and combining it with another argument. We're, we're, we're sort of saying like, it, it, it's actually like kind of what these AIs are doing in some sense. And I, um, I even like, I, like, I just don't think we can, we can rest on our laurels here. And I don't think we can assume that because we, you know, we think that we're, so talented and special, um, these AIs aren't going to be a problem. So you think us. you think the abstract creators are 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 like more insulated from the from the AI colonization than us lowly hacks? Uh, it could be, it could be, um, but I think. I don't think anyone's safe. I don't think there's any. <laughs> there I, we go. I, like I, I, and I don't mean that in like a doomsaying way. I, I just genuinely think that like you know one hard thing that we're going to have to get our minds around as a society is that you know a lot of us are pattern recognition machines we yeah. are we are people who are doing pretty basic sort of take one i mean one sort of thing that i've gotten wrong about ai over the years is i i thought that the sort of manual jobs would would be automated before the sort of creative jobs and what we're seeing now is that a lot of so-called creative jobs are actually just about sort of rote repetition of kind of processes of like like a fashion designer. Maybe they're a, an, an amazing genius original fashion designer, or maybe they're just saying like, let's combine these three styles in a way, or like let's take you know what what Gucci did last spring and let's change it in a couple different ways and make some variations on it and like do it ourselves. It's like kind of pattern recognition and synthesis. I, I guess here's why, here's why like I, and it's it really, I think I, I honestly think I came to this less because like, I, I want to think of myself as some sort of um, like special entity in the world that can't be outcompeted by AI, but just the nature of like the best journalism um, like, for instance, let's say you were tipped off by a source about some 19-year-old kid at Stanford or wh wherever who had, like, 
done something amazing techno- technologically with AI or anything else. Just like this kid had, it was like the, the Einstein of tech for something. And you were on this lead and you tracked him down and you got an interview and you came to understand what he was working on. And you spun it into like this incredible story that was like part biography of the kid and part exploration of what he was doing. Right. And okay. If like, New information comes to light. You recognize it as like a fruitful topic to report on. You can do that. If you you tell an AI, at least AIs as they exist today, about that and have them do the same, try to do the same work, I think it would look weird. I don't think it would look like a story, a piece of narrative nonfiction or whatever that anybody recognized as as like being done by a, a human. They would think they would... I think they would know that it was it was like a a machine sure. that had tried to figure out how the world had changed, even though it couldn't actually see that the world had changed. You know what I mean? Totally. And I, and that's why I think, for example, opinion writers are going to be easier for AIs to replace than right. investigative reporters because investigative reporting re- relies on human relationships and you know getting people to divulge secrets and doing archival research and all these things that like sort of depend on. Uh, what for now are human skills, whereas, you know, some opinion writing, and I'm not naming names, is sort of just, you know, paint by numbers, like something happened and here's my take. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I have over the, over the course of the last decade or so written a couple and abandoned a couple like book proposals, um, because, um, a lot of the work I do, I worry, like if I spent six months or a year writing a book on it would be relevant for like a, a month or two and then be forgotten. And I want to avoid that. Um, so I asked the chat bot, um, I said, I'm a life coach advising the journalist, Brian Boitler. Brian wants to write a book, but only if he's confident that the book won't become irrelevant commercially or otherwise very quickly. Given his interests and areas of expertise, please provide three brief synopses of books he might write that will continue to be cited, purchased, or assigned in universities for years after publication. And it gave me, oh my God. Um, Okay, I'll just read them all. (laughs) The Art of Persuasion, a guide to influential writing and speaking. This book would explore the various techniques that writers and speakers can use to persuade their audiences and make a lasting impact. It would cover topics such as logical argumentation, the use of emotional appeals, and the importance of framing and storytelling. Two, Digital Democracy, the Future of Politics and the Media in the Information Age. This book would examine the ways in which the rise of the internet and social media is transforming the political landscape and the role of the media. It would discuss the challenges and opportunities posed by the shift to digital communication and offer strategies for navigating the new political environment. Three, The Science of Happiness, How to Increase Well-Being and Reduce Suffering. This book would delve into the latest research on happiness and well-being and offer practical advice on how individuals can improve their own happiness and the happiness of those around them. It would cover topics such as mindfulness, gratitude, and the importance of social connection, and would provide a scientific framework for understanding and enhancing well-being. That's pretty good. I know. I mean, like, it's not, I'm not going to write any of those books. They don't, they don't, well, I mean, they actually kind of go in order. Like, the first one is the one that I could, I think, do most authoritatively. Uh, followed by Do all three. Two. Use use ChatGPT to write the books. Well, I mean, but I like I found this like I was like this isn't quite helpful yet, but like the next generation, like w- you know, before you cross the line into just basically outright plagiarism, it's like a sounding board, and like these aren't 
particularly bad ideas. And they do No, there are best selling books about all of those All topics. of those things. And like yeah. and like and they intersect with stuff that I've written about recently that clearly the chatbot is aware of. Um and I was like I was like a little scared by by the response and also like a little wary about reading the response out on the podcast, but I'm just like, screw it. Like people should understand how much the chatbot already knows about them. Like by the time, totally. you know, if, if you have any kind of public profile. Um, and even if you don't, I mean, you could say, you know, I'm a geologist, uh, you know, with an interest in, uh, you know, antique cars, what are, you know, three books. I should. So it, it's, it's not even dependent on sort of you having a public profile and a body of existing work. It could just do that based on some things that you tell it about yourself. Right, right, right. But I mean, I think, I think in my, I assume in my case, because I'm on the internet in 2021, it, it knew who I was in some sense. I know you have yeah. to go soon, but, um, but since like we're, we're at this, like how will creators use this? How will this affect creators? Um, like I, there are definitely benevolent ways creators can use this to help jog their thinking or whatever. Um, but because so many people are interfacing with AI for the first time on this bot, um, a lot of the navel gazing has been about how it might ex it disrupt things like teaching, journalism. Um, like, can teachers teach the way they know how to teach if a chatbot if a chatbot can just do a kid's homework for them? Um, you know, if a journalist can just say, "Write me an article about this." And I guess my question is: uh, is is this kind of concern inextricable from AI, or can AI be developed? in a way that at least preserves this realm where like we know what is human creation um, rather than like, it's kind of a mystery. Everything might be plagiarized in a way. Um, I, I think it's already, we've already crossed that bridge. I mean, it's, I've heard from students who are using this to do all their homework. Um, I've heard from, you know, marketers who, uh, have been using AI to write their uh, their client emails. Um, this is already, you know, the, this this particular uh, toothpaste is out of the tube already. Um, so I think that it's going to be a challenge for, especially evaluators. Like I I talked to some teachers who are who basically consider this the end of homework, um, and say you know I'm going to have to move to oral exams, in-class essays, things like that, because, you know, I assume that if something like ChatGPT is available, all of my students will be using it. Why would they not? And frankly, why would I not allow them to? Um, it seems a little arbitrary. It, but, it, I mean, the the human engineers behind it, is, is, is AI something that is refinable in a way that would in some sense, sort of like a watermark, what is the creation of a AI versus what is the creation of a human? So, I mean, it does sure. feel like cheating to me. And maybe I'm just like being a little bit of a grandpa here, but that there's a difference to me between like, help me understand why nine times six equals 54. And hey, my, my homework assignment is what is nine times six? Give me the answer. And I mean, obviously, we've been way past simple math calculation, but I think, you know, my prompt for the essay is this, write the essay versus my prompt for the essay is this, will you help me understand what the prompt means so that I could write the essay? Like, those are two different creative enterprises. One's theft to me and one's one's like a, a human learning, which is great. Um, and I don't, I, I don't know if that's a, 
a line that the creators of AI can brighten so that AI just it isn't just used uh, to to help people skip out on learning. <laughs> well, there's that famous uh, quote, good artists borrow, great artists steal. I think that was maybe Picasso. Um, so I think it's... Uh, a, maybe a little bit romanticized to say that we we've you know we've we were these sort of engines for original generation of ideas and now we're all just going to be glorified plagiarists. But I do think there's an idea in there about watermarking AI generated content that's probably going to be important, um, especially in in situations where work is being sort of evaluated. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that like I'm I'm aware of the downsides and I think those are really important. And at the same time, like I've been using ChatGPT as my personal tutor for the last week. And it's amazing. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's explaining stuff to me that I have been meaning to learn about for years, but maybe I couldn't find the right, you know, journal article or it was too technical or something like that. And I've just been having it explain concepts to me and it's really, really good. So I think, yes, there will be issues for students. Yes, there will be issues for teachers assigning homework, but the idea that every student could have access to a personalized tutor that would explain anything they wanted to them at any level of difficulty and do it in a reliable way is, I think, just a really, really exciting possibility. That's a good note to end on, but I'm going to make you end on, are you worried about the robot apocalypse? Sure. I think I think you'd, you have to be. Um, I don't, it doesn't keep me up at night, but it's also you know something that I think we all need to be paying attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's just when you, when like the creators of this technology acknowledge, we can't promise this won't end the world. I mean, it raises novel questions that you just don't get to when you're talking about like drug development. And I, I don't know, I don't know how you can approach it without feeling like, like how you can approach it with the sense of utopianism that some of the people in the tech world seem to have about it. Like if, if you can't rule out that scenario. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's sort of how you, how you want to live your life. Do you want to, you know, do you want to see something new and be, and think of all the ways that it could end civilization <laughs> or do you want to, uh, or do you want to see something new and figure out how we can use it for good and, and to, to put real pressure on the companies developing this stuff to make it um, harder to use for nefarious purposes and easier to use for good purposes. I think that's a totally legitimate goal. Yeah, the, the, you could tell that, that the chatbot is being refined to, be less easy. I mean, it's a fun game to try to get the chat bot to admit that, like, for instance, it would ultimately start lying to you if, if it would, if that was optimal in some way. And, and, and as it's gotten smarter, the, the, the people who are like, I guess it sort of works like y you punish the AI when it starts giving these answers, like how do you build a bomb or whatever, uh, so that it stops doing that. And I, I've noticed just in the last couple of weeks that it's gotten harder to trick it. Yeah, and so maybe maybe like there's some hope there that just like public pressure on the people responsible for creating this thing will be great enough that they will be policing it at least well enough so that we don't fast forward from here to the to the nightmare scenarios. Kevin Roos, I kept you too long. Thank you uh, for spending so much of your time with us. Thanks for having me. All right, I got to say, I envy Kevin's chill. And in the spirit of that chill, I'm not going to try to end on any profound note because as you probably gathered, I'm not sure any one person can really wrap their head around what it all means when the it 
is advanced artificial intelligence. So instead, I'll close with some more chat GPT content. Uh, we thought it'd be fun to ask the chatbot for some episode ideas for Positively Dreadful. But then we realized ChatGPT can't really be aware of our existence because we launched this year. So first I asked about our precursor show. I said, give me three good episode ideas for the podcast Rubicon. And it offered the rise and fall of ancient Rome. This episode could explore the history of ancient Rome from its founding to its eventual collapse. The episode could focus on key events and figures in Roman history, such as Julius Caesar, Augustus, and Constantine. The power of propaganda. This episode could delve into the ways in which propaganda has been used throughout history to manipulate public opinion and shape political outcomes. The episode could explore examples of propaganda from different time periods and discuss how it has evolved over time. The role of religion in politics. This episode could explore the intersection of religion and politics, examining the ways in which religious beliefs have influenced political decisions and vice versa. The episode could discuss examples of religious influence on politics from different time periods and regions of the world. That first answer in particular seemed pretty fishy to me, because while the show was called Rubicon, it had nothing to do with ancient Rome. So I asked ChatGPT how it was able to generate those ideas, and it said, in this case, I was able to generate ideas for the podcast based on my understanding of what a podcast is and the context of the prompt, as well as my knowledge of history, politics, and other relevant subjects. I did not have any specific information about a podcast called Rubicon, because that information is not part of my training data. Bummer. So then I said, Positively Dreadful is a weekly interview podcast hosted by the journalist Brian Boitler. The show is about worrisome trends in politics and society and how people can better understand those trends and hopefully improve them. Given this theme, give me three possible Positively Dreadful guests along with the topics they discuss. And ChatGPT offered a political scientist who studies the rise of authoritarianism in democracies and around the world. They could discuss the warning signs of authoritarianism and offer advice on how individuals and communities can protect against it. A social psychologist who studies the effects of social media on mental health and political discourse. They could discuss potential negative effects of social media as well as strategies for using social media in a more positive and constructive way. An expert on disinformation and propaganda who has studies the ways in which false information is spread and used to manipulate public opinion. They could discuss the tactics used by those who spread disinformation and offer advice on how to identify and counter false information. I'm pretty sure we've done at least two of those three shows already, which means the AI knew with a one-sentence prompt how to do in an instant what my producers and I spend at least an hour a week working on with all our combined years of experience. Yeah. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich-Frank. Evan Sutton mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Fotopoulos.